2: What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation.
3: From Chicago, this is film spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar.
0: This is my ninth sick day this semester. It's getting pretty tough coming up with new illnesses. If I go for 10, I'm probably going to have to barf up a lung. So I better make this one count.
1: This week on the show, the top five characters who shaped us with guest Aisha Harris from NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour. Josh, I'm guessing Ferris taught you that licking your palms was the best way to fake an illness, or maybe that you didn't even need one lesson to play the clarinet.
3: Ferris just might make my list, but it's not going to be for the reasons you think. All that and more. Josh Larson, you're my hero. (laughs) I'm film spotting.
1: Welcome to Film Spotting. Over the course of almost 20 years of doing the show, Josh, we've done top fives devoted to movie characters we wish we could be. We've done things the movies taught us, not to mention the top five movie costumes we'd wear. Yes. This week's top five is about how the movies and specifically movie characters shaped us for better or worse. Do you have some worse in there? Oh, there's a little bit of worse. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to have to get us started with some worse, I'm afraid. Okay. Later in the show, you'll have a few thoughts on Pixar's new Elemental, plus poll results with your pick for the best performance in a Wes Anderson movie. And we'll talk Harrison Ford's best performance. We made it pretty simple or extremely difficult for you, Indy or Han. That's it. Two choices. Josh, we did want to give a quick note and remind folks to please give us a rating or review
3: over on Apple Podcasts. We did get two new five-star ratings this week. That is always fun to see. It included this one from Joel Aarons in Australia. I love their top fives, Massacre Theater, drafts, and bonus content. I especially love their marathons, which I always follow along with. The recent one, which was Sight and Sound Blind Spots, I really hope could be a regular annual thing. Thanks for that note, Joel. Obviously, a film
1: spotting family member getting our bonus content and not a bad thought when we reviewed the Sight and Sound top 100 list and came up with our blind spots. We settled on six for that marathon that we both hadn't seen. But I think we each had maybe 20 to 25 that we needed to catch up with. We could actually do that marathon again. There are plenty left. It's probably one we should do every year. Now it's time to welcome this week's guest. Very excited to have on film spotting a longtime friend of the show, a regular trivia spotting participant. She's the co-host of NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour, Aisha Harris. Hi, Aisha.
0: Hey, I'm so excited to be here.
1: <laughs> great
3: to have you, Ayesha. It is great.
1: Yeah, and you've kindly agreed to play along with our top five this week, directly inspired, directly lifted from your book. I feel like a talk show host, though only the two of you can see this. I'm going to hold up my hard copy (laughs) of the book, Wannabe Reckonings with the Pop Culture That Shapes Me. It is available now wherever one gets their books. I was thrilled to get the call today from my local bookstore that my pre-order had come in. I had to rush down and get it, got some reading in. How does it feel to finally have the book out there?
0: surreal um (laughs) josh i'm sure you can relate it's like you you work a really long time on something uh something that has taken me the longest of any project i've ever done and now it's out in the world and it feels weird but also good and the hardest part was writing it so the fact that that's over (laughs) is (laughs) such a relief
1: (laughs) yeah and usually this is the point where we ask where the idea for the book came from, but of course, you've had the experience of being you your entire life, and you've (laughs) you've reckoned with pop culture probably almost as long as you've been alive. So you've been thinking about this really for a very, very long time, but I'm still curious, when did it turn into a book idea, something you knew you were going to do?
0: Um, it was about a little over three years ago. Um, I was approached by my wonderful editor Daniela, um, who uh, you know reached out to me and said, "I like your stuff. I would love it if you." Thought about writing a book, and this had not been the first time I'd been approached about doing it. But it's one of those things where if you're not in the right place to do it, uh, why don't do it? Just because this is <laughs> you're devoting a lot of time and energy to it, and I felt like when she reached out to me, I finally did feel as though I had a good kernel of an idea, and I knew I wanted to make it a collection of essays um, because that's what I love to do, and that is what I do. Is I. In addition to podcasting, I, I write essays and, and, and reviews. And they also knew that I wanted it to be personal um, and and also serve, like, a critical purpose. And so it, it was really fun to sort of figure out how much of this is personal versus critical. I There's a lot of research that went into this book, both, like, my own research of, you know, various—JSTOR was a big <laughs> help to me, LexisNexis, but also, like, my parents, <laughs> um, my sister— And it was really fun to be able to do that. And I hope that people will see a little bit of themselves in it and also be able to help evaluate their own relationship with uh, pop culture.
3: My guess is that's a trickier balance to pull off than people might at first guess that critical value plus the personal storytelling. And I have to say, Aisha, just having read you for years, listened to you on podcasts, what I'm most impressed by is how you've retained your voice. And maybe that seems obvious because it's a personal story, but you do weave in so much of this pop culture history, your own experience with it, and context, but it sounds like you throughout the whole thing just i can just hear you you know as i'm reading it and i want to know if that's something is that just kind of how you write i think it is a quality of all your writing has been is that something you worked on with your editor is it something you found was easier in early drafts or was the personal voice more a feature that you had to go back and say okay this chapter needs a little more of me how did how did you yeah. what was the process of achieving that balance cuz i think you really nailed it
0: Thank you. Yeah, it was definitely, uh, there were definitely moments where my editor would be like, can you make this a little more fun, funnier? (laughs) (laughs) Um, But overall, like, I I feel as though I I do, the way I write is often the way I just my mind works and the way I would say those things out loud in conversation. I like to have as conversational a tone as possible when I can, but yeah, there are there are other times in the book, and there's at least there's one essay that's like not really about me. It's a it's about my generation more broadly. I initially had some pieces about my personal life weaved in, but then like. It was getting a little long, and I had to sort of wrap it up. And I couldn't figure out a way to really incorporate myself into it. And and, I, and this was one I also like interviewed other people about because they had interesting stories. Um, it's an entire chapter that's about the uh, intergenerational trauma narratives that have become sort of a trend in mm-hmm. filming TV as of late, including you know everything everywhere at all at once, Encanto, um, Russian Doll. So yeah, I wanted to interview people who might have had like experience. Experiences that were a little bit closer to those characters. Um because I look we all have our parental issues <laughs> uh, with our parents, uh, but they weren't they aren't quite on the level of like everything everywhere <laughs> all at once. <laughs> like my, my my parents have been pretty pretty accepting of everything that I've done. But it was it was interesting to try and find that balance and I think I think I, I did. Um it, yeah <laughs>
1: <laughs> You mentioned conducting some interviews. You also mentioned talking to your parents or talking to other family members. Did you actually conduct formal interviews with them for the book? Or was it more like I'm gonna hit them with an email or a text or, or call them with a question? And I'd like to know, in terms of settling on these nine essays and the nine essay topics, how did you really focus in on which pieces of pop culture that you were going to consider?
0: Yeah, I mean, for my family and friends, it was very informal. It was usually like a fact check here or there of like, oh, what do you is this how you remember this? Or, you know, that sort of thing. So there were no like formal interviews on that end. But in terms of trying to nail down sort of the shape of the book, you know, I I wanted to sort of choose, I, I kind of wanted to go in order, Well, not really in order, but like I wanted to hit sort of the main points of my life, as well as, like, main points that I've noticed shifts in culture and popular culture. And so, you know, I start off in the the first chapter with an entire sort of exploration of my name. Um, And I bring in, you know, Stevie Wonder and High Fidelity and all these other various pop culture strands and i wanted to sort of lay that foundation of like this is kind of my way of thinking i'm going to take you down many rabbit holes you might think you know where you're going but that's that's it's going to go in a completely different direction um and you know i i also wanted to touch on things as it relates to gender um and sexuality and franchises and how just like overbearing this entire like franchisification of everything is um so yeah it was it was just trying to figure out a balance between the personal and then larger trends within popular culture that I felt were worth sort of going really long and deep on um, in ways that, like, I can't always do, you know, in my regular day job.
1: I was definitely thinking about High Fidelity, the book first, which had a huge influence on this show. That's where I initially got the concept to steal for top five lists. But as I'm <laughs> thinking about the book and I'm thinking about our top five, that that Rob Gordon line, what came first, the music or the misery? Did I listen to pop music because I was <laughs> miserable? Or was I miserable because I listened to pop music? That's that's really the the central thought I had. Was I drawn to these movies because of who I am, or or maybe who I was, or am I who I am because of these movies? And I don't know that I I can ever get an exact or a precise answer to that question, but it was really fun to think about. And of course, your book is reckonings with the pop culture that shapes me I like that it's present tense or this idea that we're we're always evolving you're still being shaped and and we certainly feel the same way but I I have a sense that all of us are going to really look into our past for this top five as we think about our childhood (laughs) and adolescence and the the characters that have the biggest influence on us so I don't know Josh if you have anything you want to say or maybe you can preface your your list I think I'm ready to jump in are you
3: Yeah, I think I am as well. Maybe we should clarify just what this is not, which I know we've Mm -hmm. done on previous shows, but it isn't exactly who we wanted to be when we grew up, you know, as we were younger watching this stuff. Um, So to take the poll question we're talking about, it's not Indiana Jones or or Han Solo, you know? Maybe it could be one of them, (laughs) but for other reasons, right? Right. It's not because we wanted to be them, but somehow they formed us. So certainly open to that. We alluded to the fact that there may be some characters on these lists that are had negative influences. And I think Sam our producer, producer, Sam kind of jump started that a little bit when he said, think about maybe characters that shaped you because of their failures. So I, I think I probably have one of those. I also have a character. Yeah. Who did, I think <laughs> actively shape me negatively. And um, because that's, you know, not quite a positive take my list starts with that at number five. So,
1: okay. Well, we are going to give our guest the first shot at it here. Aisha. We'd love to hear your number five character who shaped you.
0: Okay, so when I say it, you'll be like, "What?" But uh, <laughs> my number five, and this is this is actually a late addition. I just added this character r- right before we started talking because I it just it, it it stuck in my mind and I could not uh, let it escape, or I could not let it go. Um, and my number five is Mammy from Gone with the Wind. Hmm. um yes (laughs) so the similar to josh in a way like that yes this is a negative character or it shaped me in ways that i didn't quite expect and it shaped me i think especially as a critic and as a thinker about representation in film and I mean, I think the first time I saw Gone with the Wind was probably when I was around eight or nine years old, Um, and I was just kind of blown away by it. I've always really had this weird relationship with this movie where like I kind of... Am swept away by how beautiful it is and how grandiose and over the top and sweeping it is. And yet then there's that whole racism thing, you know, <laughs> so um, and and the long tail of that racism and how it really influenced so much of film and TV and how black people have been seen on screen, um, perhaps even more so or like in different ways than something like Birth of a Nation, because it's way more accessible and way more just like goes down easy, sort of of. of like you know like a sweet candy Mm -hmm. and um when I say that it's shaped me, it's that, you know, for I saw it and I didn't I was eight or nine. So I didn't like have any real context. I couldn't really put it into context and then watched it again in my teens and was like, oh, this is I realized this movie is racist and Mammy is a terrible character. And then I eventually read film scholars on this, especially someone like Donald Bogle, um, who has written and talked about especially the Mammy character and Hattie McDaniel's character extensively. And Reading him and seeing how some scholars have really tried to recontextualize her and put her into this category as, yes, she was a stereotype. She was a servant, a slave, um, an enslaved person um, who the movie pretends wasn't enslaved, was just there because she wanted to be. Um but also there is a there's dignity to be found in this character there's the fact that she is constantly pushing back against scarlet and kind of always has like metaphorically speaking the upper hand she has a little bit of power in the sense that she can shut down scarlet at least from a verbal perspective often oh now miss scarlet
2: you come on and be good and eat just a little, no i'm going to have a good time today do my eating at the barbecue. If you don't care what folks says about this family, I does. I has told you and told you that you can always tell a lady but the way that she eats in front of folks like a bird. And I ain't aiming for you to go to Mr. John Wilkes's and eat like a field hand and gobble like a hawk. Fiddle-dee-dee. Ashley Wilkes told me he likes to see a girl with a healthy appetite. What gentleman says and what they thinks is two different things. And I ain't noticed Mr.
0: Ashley asking for to marry you that just made me really think about how we talk about representation and it's taken me a while. And I think I'm still on this journey with this character where I, I see her as complicated and I don't see her as just purely negative anymore. And that's really sort of seeped into how I think about other polarizing characters um, who have been sort of reviled <laughs> for their representation and how they represent Historically marginalized uh, people. So, Mammy.
3: (laughs) I love that this gets us started in a way that allows us to see these characters or experiences with them in flux. You know, back to what Adam was saying about the title of your book, that these are characters who shape us. And you also have just suggested another list. It could be movies that informed us as critics, not just as people. Um, And this representation question, I do think, is a crucial one. It sounds like. Your experience has emboldened you to explore the nuance of such characters, maybe, rather than feel like we need to immediately plant a flag in one camp or another. Is that fair?
0: Yeah, I think that's absolutely fair. Um, I really just think it, I want to, it, it's helped me challenge um, and move away from this idea that there is just negative or positive imagery, um, that it's it's complicated <laughs> and
3: who goes goodness. to character jail and who doesn't go to character jail yeah yeah I, I i
1: don't
0: i don't i don't even know if i believe in character jail um so yeah
1: <laughs> I, I suppose there will come a time josh where i'll i'll get so tired of admitting on the show that i've never watched gone
3: with the wind that i'll oh, finally yeah. remedy that Adam, I I gave you the out. I I jumped in, so you didn't have to address that. You could have just hid. And I knew you were doing it for me
1: as well. Yeah, I'm looking at that AFI Top 100 list, the highest film ranked. I still haven't seen number six. It's a long
0: movie. In its
1: defense, it's a long movie. That's part of his (laughs) problem,
3: Aisha. That's definitely part of his problem. Yes, it is.
1: Well, Josh, give us your
3: number five. All right, I've got Ferris Bueller, Matthew Broderick, of course, from Ferris Bueller's Day off. A beloved character. And so I'm probably going to get in trouble by talking about him somewhat negatively here. He's just a character, though, who shaped me in retrospect in probably mostly an unhealthy way. This is 1986 when the movie comes out. I'm in middle school. At the time, couldn't imagine a cooler character like this is it. This is how... I imagine myself living, and this is how I somehow really want to live. This, this smug high schooler, right, who pulls off the world's greatest ditch day in Chicago, no less, is where this is happening. I mean, what's not to love? He pulls the strings at school. He fools his parents. He gets to hang out with his friend, played by Successions, of all people, Alan Ruck. Alan Ruck ends up in Succession. How wonderful is that? And, of course, his girlfriend, played by Mia Sara. Well, I think it's, it's just got to be said, Ferris is also an asshole, he just is I mean anyone can see that now as an adult it's something that someone else did see in the movie his sister played Mm -hmm. by Jennifer Gray and this is what she tries to explain to a bad boy she encounters played by a very young Charlie Sheen
0: in a nutshell I hate my brother how's that?
2: that's cool did you blow him away or something?
0: no not yet See, I went home to confirm that the head was ditching school, and when I was there, a guy broke into the house, I called the cops, and they picked me up for making a phony phone call.
2: What do you care if your brother ditches school? Why should he get to ditch when everybody else has to go? You could ditch. Yeah. I'd get caught. I so you're pissed off because he ditches and doesn't get caught, is that it? Basically. Basically. And your problem is you. Excuse me?
3: Excuse you. I do think the movie, it ultimately sides with Ferris. Doesn't side with his sister. This is just a comic aside. I know that I sided with him. It was so bad that I watched both Ferris Bueller inspired TV shows. Yes, there were oh, two. <laughs> the, you had the, the o- jacket too, didn't you, Josh? <laughs> oh, I'm getting there. <laughs> the official <laughs> show called Fair Bueller that aired on NBC in 1990. It was canceled after 13 episodes. Then there was an unofficial and better one. In my esteemed opinion, Parker Lewis can't lose that ran for three seasons on Fox. It also started in 1990. And yes, Adam, I might've had one of those bright, boldly patterned button shirts, that the title character played by Corin Nemec wore, I think he buttoned him all the way to the top. I don't, I don't know if I went that far, but uh, yeah, I was all in. Now, if you go back to Matthew Broderick's Ferris Bueller, I I do kind of blame him for the the ass I was in middle school. Honestly, smug, <laughs> thought I knew better than everyone else. Um, I'm sure some of that was in me naturally. I'm not blaming Ferris entirely, but boy did Did that character make it seem cool to play that sort of stuff up? so I like to think I like to think I've been growing out of Ferris Bueller my whole yeah. life, you know, getting a little less Bueller in high school, a little less in college, and so on but i I have never done a revisit of this movie. It's been a long time I should say, because a little bit I'm afraid to still see myself in that mirror. I just want to keep keep Ferris in the past.
1: well, I'm praying that this isn't going to apply to our guest Aisha, but I do find the Ferris Bueller haters to be some of the most insufferable people on the planet. <laughs> Fortunately, I don't run into too many of them and I don't mean the movie i really don't I really don't have a strong feeling about how anyone else feels about the movie. I was a fan of it as a kid, and I imagine I'd still like it. But the people who really have, in retrospect, now decided that Ferris is just the worst human being alive. It doesn't sound (laughs) like you're quite going
3: there. No, that's a little strong. That's a little strong. Just in the context of how I was shaped by him, probably wasn't the best influence. What's really funny, though,
1: is that I knew Ferris Bueller was going to make your list, but I didn't know what scene you were going to pick, and whatever you said about Ferris Bueller, I was going to throw in kind of as an honorable mention. It really wouldn't make this list. I couldn't say this character shaped me in the way the other characters on my list actually shaped me, but if we were doing another sort of lessons we learned from the movies, the very scene you chose Mm -hmm. is a lesson that I actually consider probably once a month in my life. And it's that character, Charlie Sheen, who I found out preparing for this list, Josh, has a name. He's not just boy in police station. Apparently, someone looked at an early version of the script or something, and his name is supposed to be Garth Volbrook. (laughs) Charlie Sheen is Garth Volbrook. Okay. And that scene where she's so mad, she's so mad about her brother, and I remember feeling just like her or understanding her. Sure. Even though I liked Ferris and thought he was cool, I was like, I get it. That would frustrate me, too. I hate it when people get away with things, and, and I don't get away with anything. And the way he calls her out on it and says, your problem is you, you ought to spend a little more time dealing with yourself and and worry a little less about what your brother does. I seriously, I find myself as an adult, ever since I saw Ferris Bueller, if I ever catch myself getting a little angry because I feel like someone else is getting away with something, I actually do think about those words and I ask myself, how is this hurting me? How does this affect me? Why am I letting this bug me that this person is getting away with something? So what? Garth Volbrook. The,
3: Garth. the immortal words of Garth Volbrook. We always need a Garth Volbrook or whatever in our life. If only everyone had one.
0: Sage advice. Sage yes. advice.
3: Yes.
1: Okay. So my top five here. Some common themes are definitely going to emerge as I go through these picks, which which makes sense, right? If they really shape me in a significant way. You should see the DNA of who I am now or who I perceive myself to be now in these characters. So who am I? Well, I'm romantic about art, and I love thinking about it, and I love trying to unlock it. I love trying to make sense of it. I was an English major, so so poetry and short stories and novels, those, those all appeal to me. I want to consider those. I, I examine and engage in conversation about film with Josh here every week. I'm still sort of a musician, if doing one gig a year with the guys that I've been playing with since we were twelve counts as being a musician, I'm gonna I'm gonna count it. That counts. <laughs> Music is the only one I actually do. Again, asterisk. That's a key as well, I think, as I look back at these characters. I'm a I'm a critic. I'm not a filmmaker. I wrote essays about prose and poetry. I've never been a fiction writer or a poet myself and that's not entirely true i i dabbled i dabbled in college and it was as terrible as you might imagine all of these dynamics are going to factor into my picks but i do want to say that it was organic i didn't i didn't set out with any of this in mind or trying to come up with any of these themes i just truly did think about the characters who i thought had the biggest impact on me in my youth and my adolescence and and then when i looked at the list i was like okay everything is is kind of clicking into place here this all makes sense well they're not all going to be masterpieces. Okay. <laughs> My number five, I'm going to mention two characters here that I can't separate, and I'll explain why in a second, that I'm sure neither of you have ever heard of. I'm going to go back to 1983, 84. I'm eight years old. We're to set the table, too. I think Aisha, we're, we're a solid decade, maybe a little more older than you if I mm-hmm. if I read your book correctly. So we're going to have a few different touchstones here. But HBO is playing a movie, and the Rock radio stations are spinning a song from the soundtrack of this movie on repeat. It's a movie. Here's some trivia. Directed by Martin Davidson. Probably doesn't ring a bell. I had to mm-hmm. look up his filmography. Lords of Flatbush, the most recognizable title. It's a film that was the 110th highest grosser at the domestic box office that year, not a hit. And looking at Rotten Tomatoes, I do want to say only 16 reviews of it, but only only 38% of them are positive. The characters are Frank Ridgway and Eddie Wilson from Eddie and the Cruisers.
3: Oh, yeah. So, I've, I've heard of Eddie and the Cruisers. I it. mean, come you've on. Heard it.
1: On the Dark Side was the hit song. <laughs> Sometimes you'll, you'll still hear it on classic rock radio stations. It was an original song written for the movie. But Tom Beringer plays Frank Ridgway. Michael Paré is Eddie Wilson. And, and as I said, I can't separate them because the movie taught me that and taught the world, really, words and music. Words and music, they, they just they go together. It's an early Behringer performance. First time I saw him on screen, the big chill I looked this up actually came out a week after Eddie and the Cruisers in September 1983. If you don't know this movie at all, the quick plot synopsis is a television newswoman who's played by Ellen Barkin picks up the story of a 1960s rock band whose long-lost leader, Eddie Wilson, may still be alive while searching for the missing tapes of the band's never-released album. So she seeks out Frank was now a high school English teacher to try to pick up this trail of Eddie Wilson, because Frank was a member of the band. So the movie is built all around his memories and these flashbacks to his time with the band and his introduction to the band is the key scene for me. He's mopping floors at this like Jersey bar that the band is rehearsing in ahead of a show. And he's got a book of poetry in his back pocket. So, so, you know, he's artsy and, and cerebral, right? And, Eddie is arguing with the bass player in the band, his his temperamental bass player, because we're we're all temperamental bass players. They're arguing about a song the bass player wants to contribute to the group. Eddie thinks the vocals need some space to breathe. The bass player is just worried about the beat and giving the kids something to dance to. So this scene is on YouTube and we'll we'll put it here in the show notes and I think Sam will probably play it even though the the audio quality, the video quality is just someone taping it off a television, might have been me, it might not have been. <laughs> but but all of a sudden in this scene we get this lesson in literary analysis. The definition and an illustration of the use of a caesura. Uh,
2: caesura that's a timely pause and kind of a strategic silence. That's exactly right. If you want, I'll give you an example. One evening I took beauty in my arms, and I thought her bitter, and I insulted her. Sounds like right? Okay, wait a minute, wait a minute. Now I'll do it with the seisua. One evening I took beauty in my arms, and I thought her bitter, and I insulted her. Now that's good class. Does
3: that have
1: class, Sally? Right. He's referencing. He uses his, his example in Arthur Rimbaud poem, and Rimbaud ends up factoring into the rest of the movie because Eddie doesn't want to keep producing rock music the kids can dance to. He has greater artistic ambitions. He basically wants to make music that that qualifies as as poetry. And I've just never forgotten this scene: the romanticism of poetry and music, the the striving for greatness, and the self destructive nature of that striving. These are ideas I've just always been drawn to. And of course, I'm also teaching now, and have long wanted to teach. And this whole scene is didactic. It's, it's totally ponderous and absurd, too. But eight year old me was was obsessed, and inspired by it. So you know, again, chicken or egg, was it somehow in me already in movies like Eddie drew it out? Or are movies like Eddie and the cruisers and others on my list, the reason why it's in me? I don't know. But yeah, I'm all about the caesora. Or as Eddie Wilson calls it in the scene, a cesarean.
0: <laughs> this sounds like you're oh, captain. My captain is that? <laughs> oh, is that we'll oh, oh,
3: we'll good. get there. Oh, we'll get there, man. You you could probably predict the whole rest of my list. I mean, Aisha, <laughs> that, that was the one the first time this topic came up. I think I threw at Adam. Yes. Yeah, uh, yeah uh, but well, yeah, we'll, we'll we'll get to that point.
1: We'll transition there. We have to get there in in time, as I did, Aisha. So your number four <laughs> character who shaped you.
0: All right, well, I'm going to continue with Josh's uh, sort of theme from his number five and pick a a tool. He was kind of a tool. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> my number four is Harry Burns from When Harry Met Sally. Ooh. Uh, yeah, so this is, look, hands down one of my absolute favorite movies of all time i watch it once a year at christmas uh because it just feels like a holiday movie to me even though only like maybe 20 minutes of a 90 minute movie takes place (laughs) during christmas (laughs) during the holidays let's not
1: start a war like die hard over (laughs) when okay yeah, yeah
0: let's not let's not but um yeah harry was someone who when i first encountered it thought i was um and wanted to emulate in terms of his like his being a he's considering himself dark and uh edgy and look it's billy crystal in the 80s he's he's not actually but you know that entire car ride that harry and sally have the first time they meet when they're driving across the country from uh from school from i think university of chicago to new york um where he's just like you know being kind of uh annoying and spitting like eating the fruit and then spitting out the pit and then didn't realize the, the window is down or talking about jumping to the end of a book so that you like know the ending because that's that's the dark side or whatever
2: Amanda mentioned you had a dark side
0: that's what drew to me
2: your dark side sure
0: why don't you have a dark side
2: know you're probably one of those cheerful people who that's their eyes with little hearts I have just as much of a dark side as the next person oh really When I buy a new book, I always read the last page first. That way, in case I die before I finish, I know how it ends. That, my friend, is a dark
0: side. That doesn't mean you're deep or anything. I mean, yes, basically, I'm a happy person. So am I. And I don't see that there's anything wrong with that. There's just something about him that drew me to him um, because, and I read about this a little bit in my book, which is that, like, I wanted to sort of, posture and um, get close to this idea of masculinity that I thought was going to give me more power than, you know, what just being a a woman could do. Um, And so I saw myself in a lot of male characters or wanting to see myself as male characters who were kind of um, closed off, uh, emotionally unavailable. Um, had very high confidence in themselves, perhaps too much confidence in themselves and I feel like Harry to some extent uh, exudes that even though later on in the film he clearly like has a breakdown and uh, when he's divorced and I just also really, loved (laughs) that scene where he and he's telling Sally that she's high maintenance and breaking that down totally problematic and as Josh said like I I realized this had maybe not the best effect on me because I was aspiring to be like this character who wasn't really that nice a lot of the time Um, but he had a profound uh, effect on me and I still love this movie even though I think he is kind of a tool Um, and uh, Sally is way more likable and high maintenance is very much a derogatory term I think uh, that's always almost always directed at women uh, in a way that's unfair but nevertheless I still still love it but he (laughs) shaped me and. in not great ways.
3: (laughs) So what was your trajectory with, is this something you recognize right away with him? Like as you were drawn to him, you're like, yeah, but, or was this kind of after repeat, repeat viewings you started to.
0: Yeah. It's definitely repeat viewings and getting older and, Reading more feminist <laughs> literature okay. and, and, and 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 like I lump him in with also you know the Sam Malones of the world, and you know,
3: oh interesting but,
0: like, that kind of like not that he was like a ladies' band, but in just the sense of being um kind of emotionally unavailable to some extent. Mm. Um, I think that that was sort of what drew me to him because I thought that that was the way for me to sort of maintain the upper hand in relationships um, and not be the one who likes someone too much. Uh, And then I realized that's just being... That's just being mean. That's just being an asshole. Um,
1: (laughs) So, Yeah, that that comes up and Harry comes up in a great chapter in your book, I'm a Cool Girl. And I think we'll probably hear more about that as we get through some of your picks. So, Josh, let's go ahead and get to you with your number four.
3: All right, my number four is a lot of noise about the movie when it came out, but a small movie and probably forgotten at this point. The character is Sonny Dewey, also known as the Apostle E.F., played by Robert Duvall in The Apostle. Now, the great Robert Duvall has actually directed five films, and he began way back in 74 with We're Not the Jet Set and then had one as recently as 2015's Wild Horses, which I missed. My number four character, though, is coming from his 1997 film, which he also wrote, and yeah, he did star in. He plays this Pentecostal preacher, Sonny Dewey, who discovers that his wife is having an affair. He kills her lover in a fit of rage and then flees Texas for Louisiana. That's where he starts this new church, and he starts this radio ministry as the Apostle E.F.,
2: Today, the Apostle Lee Evans and his glorious choir gonna sing a song for us, Apostle. I'm gonna fly away someday. I got to be my own little airplane. Someday I'm going down that runway, I'm gonna take off. I'm not going to Jackson, Mississippi. I'm not going to Chicago, Illinois. I'm not going to Paris, France. I'm going down that runway, I'm going yonder to heaven. I'm gonna get there and say, get out of the way, moon. Get out of the way, star. I'm on my way to heaven.
3: This is a really good film, an incredible Duval performance, but what makes Sonny a pick of mine for this list, I'm not entirely sure still. <laughs> I've been trying to wrap my mind around this one, even though he came up fairly early on in the process. I think it's his status as this, this fallen believer, this idea that here's a guy who's, he's not just a fraud, right? He's not just a fraud preacher, but he is more fallen. He's more, he's more this sinner who needs to be preached to. Himself. So how does this shape me? I think it's just more in my relation of, it's a little bit of a critical thing. Like you were talking about Aisha, how I engage or what I look for in characters like this. And the movie and this character sort of restored my faith in, religious life as something that's worthy of artful representation on screen it helped clarify for me okay this is what it looks like that i could resonate with because usually you see characters like this as hypocritical monsters right um who have the shiny face but are evil on the other side or if you go to the other end of the spectrum, you'll see movies where these sorts of characters are pristine angels who can't possibly do anything wrong. And here was a guy who was just incredibly real, incredibly complicated. And yeah, I think so maybe more as someone who's sometimes deals with more faith-based material and not always really being able to connect or engage with what I'm seeing on screen, this was like, okay, this is what it could look like. This is what I appreciate, and it gave me that sort of um, lens to look through. Now, for the record, Duval's two other films as a director, 1983's Angelo, My Love, and 2002's Assassination Tango. Assassination Tango, that's the only other one that I've seen, and it's interesting, but really The Apostle is the one people should be sure to check out.
1: So... I was going to say after my last pick and all that poetry talk and teaching talk this wouldn't be a surprise but Aisha you beat me to it. I'm Oops. I'm going from <laughs> I'm going from words and music to words and ideas as Mr. John Keating puts it. I'm jumping ahead from, you know, 83 84 to 89. I'm about to become a freshman in high school. That's when I'm introduced to this this Robin Williams character who is bombastic and iconoclastic from the moment he appears on screen, that first meeting with the students in his class. And if you think about how blown away I was by a little scene that talks about the use of a caesura in a poem, how do you think I responded to the grandiosity of John Keating telling these young men, who were not that much older than me at the time, this is a battle, a war, and the casualties could be your hearts and souls. I was, I was in, I was wrapped, I was listening to everything this guy had to say. We don't read and write poetry because it's cute. We read and write poetry because we are members of the human race and the human race is filled with passion.
2: Medicine, law, business, engineering, these are noble pursuits and necessary to sustain life. But poetry, beauty, romance, love, These are what we stay alive for.
1: At this point, I was still a few years away from knowing definitively that that this would be my passion, that I would want to study English and that I'd want to do work someday, whatever that work was, that, that did focus on words and ideas and that kind of grandiosity, placing that much importance on them. But Dead Poets Society is definitely the reason why, going into my senior year, I knew I was going to take this advanced literature course, where we discussed the words and ideas of Auden and Orwell and Plath and Gwendolyn Brooks and Shakespeare, of course. And that's where we watched Branagh's Henry V. And we also watched Apocalypse Now, of course, because of the, the Conrad source material. My my future was pretty well set after after that class, and Dead Poets Society was really the impetus for wanting to take it.
3: Now, Adam, what's what's going to be your strategy now that you are teaching— are you for the jumping on the desk when's that going to happen is it going to be like three years in or do do you do that do you lead with that and kind of how do you know it
0: hasn't already happened that's a good question how
3: dare you i've had two semesters already
1: both classes last class full-on standing two jumps oh oh, captain my captain
3: (laughs) good good i would expect no less
1: (laughs) well aisha we are ready for your number three
0: okay so my number three is Esther Blodgett from A Star is Born. Um, so this one is a little bit more, I have like a specific moment I can pinpoint as to why it had such an impact on me. So going back to, I was around 12 or 13, and I was slowly becoming an old movie nerd. I was taping things off a of Turner Classic Movies uh, on VHS back when that was a thing that people taped things off of. And I was uh, just trying to I was devouring everything I could and especially musicals. I loved musicals so much. And I remember going to the library and um, taking out this like collection, like, I think it was like a Broadway, uh, or like a Broadway mu- movie musicals compilation CD, and I heard for the first time The Man That Got Away. The night is bitter. The stars have lost their glitter. The winds grow colder. Suddenly you're older.
2: And all because of the man
0: I had been familiar with Judy Garland, of course. Um, Obviously, I'd seen The Wizard of Oz. Uh, I think that was actually probably the only movie I'd seen at that point. And I heard A Star is Born, or, or The Man That Got Away, before I even had seen A Star is Born. And it just stopped me in my tracks. I was like this song is speaking to me 12 13 year old me who has never been in love but like somehow I can feel every like ounce of her pain and her desire and her grief um, and I also was an aspiring musical theater person I you know was doing musical theater in middle school and high school and and I went to school for theater so She became sort of like the blueprint of this is who I want to sound like. This is who I want to channel when I'm performing. And she and I have a similar voice range, like a a lower sort of contralto alto voice range. And so I, I was like, yes, I love this. And once I finally saw the film... I mean, it's a great performance. It's a fantastic performance. She should have won the Oscar. I will stand by that uh, till until, you know, the day I die. And there's just something about that performance and especially that scene in the makeup chair or like she's behind the scenes on the set of a movie and she's got like this sort of uh, clown makeup on her face and she's crying to her friend about how her love, Norman Maine, played by James Mason, He's been wracked with addiction and she just like doesn't know what to do. And she's like spilling her guts about how much she how difficult it is to be in love with someone who is struggling with addiction. Um, and it's just kind of the reason it changed me is because it kicked off my lifelong love for Judy Garland. It led me down this rabbit hole of just seeking out everything she's done, both musically, uh, obviously, Carnegie Hall, um, and also all of her movies. And I just she was like, I have been obsessed, (laughs) or very interested in many, many movie performers and actors. But I think Judy Garland probably goes the deepest for me. And so I think that's why Esther Blodgett, in so many ways has been a character who has shaped me just from a pure sense of movie fandom and fandom of a specific character and also a specific performer. Esther Blodgett.
1: You know what you've done, though, now, Aisha. This is the point where producer Sam would insert a clip of Judy Garland singing The Man That Got Away, except now I think we have to hear you sing it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you, don't, you don't want that.
1: <laughs> I promise. I don't know. Well,
0: maybe, you studied well, the Northwestern. You know, it's some may I someday I've done actually done this song for karaoke. Uh, there you before. see, see, yeah, yeah, but that's after a, a couple of drinks.
1: You know? <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh. we can we can arrange that maybe, maybe next time you're on the show. But you do mention Garland, and I think that song specifically, maybe in that cool girl chapter where you're you're talking about kind of what you mentioned being more of an aloof, trying to be more of that aloof, hairy type character to assert some power or dominance, but kind of realizing that. In characters like Judy Garland plays you you actually have some power in being vulnerable and showing that pain
0: yeah absolutely it's it's uh there is strength in that and I think that's partially why Judy Garland herself and her sort of iconography has resonated with so many people um, mm-hmm. over the years
3: so Josh tell us there won't be any singing with your number three Uh, there's music for sure, but no, no one has ever, ever going back to my first school choir that I got kicked out of wanted me to sing. So we're not going to do that now. (laughs) My number three character is Elwood J. Blues played by Dan Aykroyd in the Blues Brothers. Okay. So you're going to play the harmonica. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, I could try that. I mean, it doesn't seem too hard. Yeah. No, Adam, you've, you've already mentioned HBO, you know, and, and comes up on the show, all the movies that you saw as a kid. For me, the Blues Brothers was one of those constant on repeat in our neighborhood. I think it aired on WGN all the time. Um, so me and my neighborhood friends, we just would watch this and it was the funniest thing we thought we had ever seen. Now today... Yeah, I realize this is a problematic pick. The Blues Brothers <laughs> would get slammed as cultural appropriation, but what's interesting is for me as a kid in the early '80s. Again, this is 1980, I think, when it came out. So um, I'm I'm probably seeing it a little bit after that. But it was this cultural element that was the formative part for me. The Blues Brothers was it was not only a window into. A certain segment of black culture, but it was the white engagement and partnership in that culture specifically that I think did grab me. And this was also a time, you know, speaking to my number four pick and this interracial church that Sonny starts in Louisiana and the Apostle. This was also something I was experiencing in a church setting as well. So kind of different formative influences. But when you're watching the Blues Brothers and Elwood and Jake, you know they're in church listening to James Brown's Reverend Cleophas James, or when they're bearing the brunt of Aretha Franklin's disdain as uh, Matt Murphy's wife, or when they're getting their instruments from Ray Charles, music shop owner. For me, as this kid in a predominantly white suburb of Chicago, it was just really exciting. It was this exciting portrait of diverse community and artistry just the way these these two white guys could participate in these other stories. Uh Now as an adult, how does the Blues Brothers strike me? Yeah, it's cultural appropriation. I mean, the the very idea, it's in their name. The Blues Brothers is cultural appropriation. So there is absolutely no way around that. That just was one kid's experience with it. Why didn't I go with John Belushi's Joliet Jake Blues? Yeah, honestly,
1: by far the cooler character,
3: John. Honestly, he always made me a little nervous as a kid. <laughs> I mean, I thought he was hilarious, but that chaos energy when you're, what, eight, nine? Um. Yeah, but I'm going to stick with the slightly you the safer three-point. Elwood J. Blues for me. <laughs> yeah, my number three.
1: All right. Well, I'm going to go back to the HBO days. I mean, it's possible this movie played on the single screen in Grinnell, Iowa, back in the day, but I don't think so. And I definitely didn't see it there. But I'm going back to '83, '84 range, and for a while, forget forget making music. When I was in grade school, late grade school, early junior high. Forget about making music or contemplating the beauty and romance of poetry. I wanted to be a pilot. I wanted to fly. When Maverick came out and I saw Top Gun, I wanted to be Maverick. But that's because the hook was first put into me by Philip Kaufman's adaptation of Tom Wolfe's The Right Stuff, which I just got a chance to see. A life-changing opportunity, it felt like to me, to just see that about a month ago here in Chicago at the Music Box as part of the Chicago Critics Film Festival. And thinking about it in terms of this list, I mean, the movie approaches, I'd say, what these men do as pilots as if it's poetry. Flying is their art, and it's not business or law or medicine or these other practical pursuits that, that drive them. There is some engineering involved, of course, but that's not why they fly. That has nothing to do with it. They are chasing something beautiful, and they're chasing something that's greater than themselves. The first lines of the movie, it's a narrator intoning, there was a demon that lived in the air. They said whoever challenged him would die. Their controls would freeze up. Their planes would buffet wildly, and they would disintegrate. The demon lived at Mach 1 on the meter. 750 miles an hour where the air could no longer move out of the way he lived behind a barrier through which they said no man could ever pass they called it the sound barrier i mean come on john keating would have a field day with that. that is poetry right and the the (laughs) metaphor of this demon in the sky and a barrier that no man can pass through that all said why the right stuff is really on my list and this is where it's going to cross over into your most recent picks aisha a little bit and it's a reason why I've picked a trio of characters from this movie is because I think that within this trio of men, my understanding and, and probably a misguided understanding of masculinity was formed. The men are Gordo Cooper, who's played by Dennis Quaid, Chuck Yeager, played by Sam Shepard, and Gus Grissom, who's played by Fred Ward. Cooper is the hot dog as Grissom calls him. He's convinced he's the best pilot anyone ever saw. He's the man, I mean, if if Ferris Bueller was the guy you at age eight or whatever, Josh, were like, I want to be him, I wanted to be. I had to be Gordon Cooper. Just pure charisma and charm and talent. It didn't hurt that he was Dennis Quaid, so he was by far the best-looking guy of the bunch, too. Like, I, I could recognize that at that age. Of course, as you get older and you reflect on the movie more, you maybe even do get a chance to see it again. You realize that that Jaeger is the man you really wish you were and Gus Grissom's the guy you really are at best. And I I, I want to be clear because being Gus Grissom would still be pretty damn great. And I I just Googled this today and came across an NPR article from, I think, 2021. There was a piece about how some new findings suggest that his story about what went wrong, I won't get all into it, people people who've seen the right stuff know what I'm referring to. There was a, 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 a malfunction uh, the movie suggests that he he panicked and something went wrong and they lose his capsule. He's the second man up in space, so he he doesn't get the hero's welcome that everybody else gets in the in the parlance of the of the pilots. Gus has a job to do and he screws the pooch. And, and again, there's some new findings that suggest maybe he was telling the truth that maybe there really was a malfunction. But again, in the context of the movie, he doesn't exhibit the same metal. He doesn't have the right stuff or the same level of stuff that we see in in Cooper or the movie suggests we, we certainly should see in Jaeger, who you know the movie puts on a pedestal above all the others, because he's this, he's this pure pilot. He's uncompromised. He's driven only by professionalism and this desire to, to push the envelope. He's not interested in ego or fame or money or any of those types of things.
2: So do you think you want to have a go at it? Might. But uh, since, as you say, this sound barrier doesn't really exist, uh, how much? How much you got? I'm just joking. The Air Force is paying me already. Ain't that right, sir? Well, sure, you're here, but... So when do we go?
1: Well, how about tomorrow morning?
3: I'll be there. See you
1: there. And there's a scene later in the movie where. Yeager's watching a news report about Grissom's mission. He's with some other Air Force men at the base talking about it. And Yeager's response is another one I think about. I think about a lot because a guy who I think is actually a civilian who's always he has some job on the base and he's always around them. He kind of insults Gus a little bit. And I think it's Yeager who says, well, Sometimes he's you get a pooch that can't be screwed because he said he screwed the pooch. And and the guy says, oh, yeah, you know, the president, he's got the Bay of Pigs going on. He's not going to do anything to tarnish these astronauts image. Basically, no matter what goes wrong, they're going to say that these astronauts are perfect. And and he, he throws in. You'd think the public would know they're just doing what monkeys have done. So, again, watching the scene, you kind of feel like they're all kind of dogging Gus a little bit. He isn't the the Jaeger-type paradigm of a man or a pilot, it would seem, his his actions suggest. And then Jaeger shoots back. You think a monkey knows he's sitting on a rocket that might explode? These astronauts know that. I'll tell you something. It takes a special man to volunteer for a suicide mission, especially when it's on TV. Old Gus, he did it all right. So Jaeger is critical, but then when this this civilian equates what he and the other Mercury 7 astronauts are doing to, to monkeys, the monkeys that have gone up before him, Jaeger calls him out on it. And, and he's a guy who didn't want to be an astronaut. And he could easily sit there and gloat, but he doesn't denigrate what Gus did and the risks he took. He just kind of gently but firmly puts that guy in his place, and he shows Gus the proper respect. And I think that, that even at a young age, I, I detected that, that humility and his kind of clear-eyed perspective. And maybe that's actually the greatest trait yeager exhibits that that clear-eyed perspective and humility is the thing i'd actually probably like to emulate most now in my life and probably fail at doing now i've given up on the dream of of having the right stuff and and flying guys sorry
3: it's, it's over for you huh it is so adam just for the record you know i think you've named six characters so far and we still have two picks to go so i, know. We're, I was I gonna okay. say I okay know. i do just them want them to make sure here. you still have some left if it, if it
1: makes if it makes you feel any better Jennifer Gray in Ferris Bueller's day off who doesn't want anyone to have any fun I, I have I have one pick per choice
3: left that makes me feel a lot better all right how about can uh, can non-human characters shape us I certainly hope so because I've got one coming up on my list our final picks are next stay with us
1: meet the residents of Element City Air usually has their head in the clouds. Oh, my new jacket. Earth can be a little seedy. (laughs) Nothing weird going on here. Uh, Just a little pruning. That's from the trailer for Pixar's Elemental, which opens in wide release this weekend. It's the studio's 27th feature, and it takes place in a city where the residents fall into four tidy categories, earth, air, water, and fire. But water and fire don't mix, or do they? I don't mean to sound glib when I ask this, Josh, because the folks at Pixar are a talented bunch, but tell me, you've seen Elemental. If you learned that an AI bot came up with a scenario and the plot of this movie, would it surprise you? Which is, I suppose, my way of asking, did anything surprise you about this
3: seemingly generic concept? Wow. Wow, that is that is harsh. I mean, the story is not the strength here. I, I will admit that. Um, it feels more to me like it starts out feeling like a children's picture book, sort of obvious metaphor experience, which is not a bad thing. Um, you know, a, a great picture book could be made of a story like this. A great Pixar film, usually they offer something more and that's just not what we get here. It is a very strange. It, it swerves very unsteadily among different sensibilities because later on in the film, as the the main character Ember, voiced by Leah Lewis, who's really good, great vocal performance, um, develops this relationship with a, a water character uh, who is voiced by Mamadou Ati. It becomes more mature, it becomes like this interracial romance metaphor. So it starts out as an immigrant metaphor that's kind of sweet. um, But yeah, a little obvious. And then transitions into this more interracial romance metaphor that's a little more complicated. In the middle is a lot of stuff about civil engineering going on in Element City that seems sort of strange. So I don't want to scare folks away from this, but I would say it's lower mid to lower tier Pixar but still worth seeing Pixar you know what I'm going to say next right the visuals are astounding and the animators here led by director Peter Sohn they do one thing that's particularly interesting in comparison to a lot of other Pixar movies is they're employing multiple styles within the same frame so you have Ember and these other fire characters shimmer almost like cellophane and then the water characters, they have the feel or the look of old school hand-drawn animation. So that's an interesting contrast. And then the background of this film is every Pixar movie gets more and more photorealistic it seems to me and this is yet another leap forward in that sense so you have these different animated looks going on against that background that all worked for me in terms of giving us something that's more visually diverse than sometimes we often get even in pixar but yeah the story has always been the thing right with pixar it always has been the inventiveness um the nuance, the way it's resonant for all ages, not just a certain demographic, that's just not here. That's why I'm afraid, um, compared to, you know, a lot of their work, Elemental is not top tier.
1: So, Letterboxed your Pixar ranking, this is in... In that bottom, maybe... It what, is. Bottom, it is.
3: Bottom third, bottom quarter? Yeah, bottom third. But I do want to make the distinction, you know, there are there are a couple of Pixar films that I have not liked, like a- actively have disliked. It's not in that group. Elemental is currently playing in wide release.
1: If you have any thoughts, we'd love to hear from you. Feedback at filmspotting.net. Now, the fact that the new Wes Anderson movie takes place at a junior stargazer, Slash space cadet convention also makes it sound like it might have been concocted in an AI lab. But we've seen it and we know that there is nothing generic about Asteroid City. The latest one from Anderson. We'll talk about it next week on the show. I'm hoping you can help me unpack Asteroid City. Josh, our friends, a little tease here. and we're going to talk about them in a moment. Our friends from the Next Picture Show, they're pairing Asteroid City with Synecdoche, New York oh, in interesting, an upcoming set of shows. And having seen it, I know exactly why.
3: Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I think there are a couple of angles you could take on this one. I would, I would love, I'm of two minds. I would love to dive into it right now. I'm chomping at the bit to talk about this, but I also know it is one of those, like most of Anderson's films, needs to settle a little bit, yeah. needs to sink in, and you need to realize, oh, that throwaway line that I chuckled at, that's actually the key to the whole thing. It might be. So that might be the case here. Yes, there are a few. You're right. Exactly.
1: (laughs) Also next week, we'll discuss Celine songs, past lives, which is currently playing in limited release and expanding to more cities next week. And in the weeks that follow, this is the rare case, Josh, where we're set to talk about two films that seem like sure things to make our year end best list. But of course, what, what should happen in terms of expectations and what actually does end up happening
3: aren't always the same, are they? It is another good one. Fair to say at this point, yeah, you'll be getting two raves on next week's show.
1: Oh, okay. Well, you've seen past lives, and as we're taping this, I have not. So who knows? I, I could be the Grinch. I could be the curmudgeon that says, no, everybody is wrong, and I'm, I'm the only detractor on Rotten
3: Tomatoes. Do you want to put any money on that? I mean, I'm going to go out and borrow some more money and then put that down as well. That that's not going to happen.
1: That's that's how sure you are. Well, as I look at it, 98% on rotten tomatoes. Oh, I wouldn't be I wouldn't be the only detractor. I mentioned the next picture show, their current pairing. They've got part 2 of their film criticism double feature. I like that too. Criticism on film. It makes sense when you know that the movies they're talking about are Nicole Holofcener's 2001 movie, Lovely and Amazing, and her new one, You Hurt My Feelings, starring Julia Louis-Dreyfus. That's a movie we've both seen and recommend, and we recommend looking at cinemas present via its past. That's what The Next Picture Show is all about, with Tasha, with Keith, Scott, and Genevieve Kosky. New episodes post every Tuesday wherever you get your podcasts. Josh, at this point in the show, we sometimes pay tribute to and talk about the careers of people in film who have passed and sometimes we have deep appreciation for their work and sometimes we we maybe don't know enough but feel like they're people that we do want to recognize and as we're recording this treat williams the actor treat williams passed away we saw that come up on social media i looked on Letterboxd josh a scant three percent of his films I've seen despite the fact that I I know him and I I know his work but Prince in the City that Sydney Lumet film is one that comes up a lot as maybe his definitive performance our friend Michael Phillips a regular here on film spotting wrote a really nice obituary and discussed his work in the Chicago Tribune sometimes as I was saying these these don't really hit us on a personal level and Fortunately, I haven't had to do this very often, or maybe more than once here in the show's history, but I did want to mention the passing of a film spotting listener. A longtime film spotting listener. Just got this email a couple days ago. Casey Tarangio in Ottawa. He was a family member. He is someone who played trivia spotting and some people listening may remember him, possibly had Casey on your team. If you did, you were treated to someone who probably knew a lot of the answers as he was very astute and erudite when it came to the history of cinema. But he was also just a great appreciator of film and someone who had really great thoughts and ideas to share. He was someone who I didn't just know through the show, Josh. We've gotten to know a lot of people here and there over the course of doing this, but there are a few we've met and actually become friends with. We'd consider them friends. And when I went to Ottawa for the first time, I think in 2009, first time of doing the show, maybe the first time ever, I think actually to Ottawa, I said I was coming and I got an email from Casey and his buddies, Jared and Christopher, and we hung out with a few other people, I think, but the three of us hung out, had a great meal and drinks and talked about movies. And I knew just from that one night with those three guys that, you know, if this was a different life and I was just someone living in Ottawa or they were living in Chicago and we met, these are guys I'd be hanging out with all the time. We'd be best friends. So anytime I was back in Ottawa and it happened at least one or two other times, I hung out with those guys and always had such a good time and always stayed in touch with them over the years and got emails from him and got responses to the show. Casey's the guy who bought me the wire 10 plus years ago. I said on the show that I hadn't finished it or that I, I hadn't actually seen the wire in its totality. And he decided that he wanted to rectify that. He bought me the whole set of the wire on DVD and shipped it to me. Just such a thoughtful guy. And again, such a thoughtful guy when it came to film and, when I got the email, I was I was stunned and, and terribly saddened at the news. And I wanted to mention him on the show because, again, he's someone I think about a lot in terms of the show and as someone who I had a pretty close connection with, who I just met one time and got together and bonded with.
3: Yeah, Casey and I were on a trivia spotting team once. And so th- this is a loss that, you know, didn't know him quite as well as you, but it does feel real because of that, of just having that interaction and seeing his passion, his enthusiasm. Obviously, nothing compared to the those who loved him in real life every day. But we were also uh, given someone shared a list of Casey's five-star films. And I thought that was a great idea for, for those of us who knew him through his passion, just to get a chance to see. Um, and this is like films going back to the 20s all the way through last year. So I'm looking through this because it's it's a great way to get to know someone a little bit, right? Like what what Absolutely. makes them a little unique? And you see the, the titles you'd expect in terms of movies that usually get five stars. But then you see one just like, and there are a bunch of these, but one just to call out now that jumped out at me. Um, you see Your Name from Makoto Shinkai, who has a filmmaker who's come up because we... Talked about Suzume, the animated film this year from him that we uh, we really both liked. So, yeah, just to see that among his list of five star films gives you a sense of his taste and his expansiveness. And as you said, Adam, what I remember from being on the team with him, just his passion and enthusiasm.
1: They did put together, his friends put together that list of those five-star movies, and what you saw was an early version. They actually culled even more from Letterboxd. I think they're up to 160 or maybe 170 five-star movies that Casey had. We're going to link to that PDF over at filmspotting.net if you want to get to know Casey a little bit, if you didn't know him, and you want to see those movies and maybe have a great list to start filling in some blind spots for yourself. We'll also link to the letterbox version of that list. But again, just thinking about Christopher and Jared and all of his friends and his family who he leaves behind. Me and the boys talked it over. We think you're a real straight fellow.
2: Well, I've never been accused of that before, but I appreciate the sentiment. You're one of us now. What a lovely thing to say. Thank you, dear Pinky. Thank you, Gunter. Thank you, Wolf. Anything else?
1: Ray finds with some fellow inmates in Wes Anderson's The Grand Budapest Hotel. We do have a little bit more Wes Anderson talk as we get to our poll results. A couple of weeks back, we asked you, what is your favorite performance in a Wes Anderson film? We only gave you four options. We were kind of thinking of this as, who do you put on the Mount Rushmore when it comes to Actors, actresses in Wes Anderson movies, and the ones we came up with were definitely Fines in Grand Budapest, definitely Gene Hackman as Royal Tenenbaum in The Royal Tenenbaums. Pretty sure Jason Schwartzman and Rushmore had to be on the list. Weren't quite sure, as we discussed last week on the show, whether or not Bill Murray should be there, and if he was, what's it for? We went with Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou. We did throw in that fifth option, which is if you didn't like our choices, you could write in a candidate of your preference. How did it come out, Josh?
3: Most people liked our choices. I think other received just 4% of the vote and looks like the life aquatic appreciation needs to grow even more, Adam. We're going to get there someday, but for now, Bill Murray only got 12% of the vote. Jason Schwartzman in Rushmore received 18% of the vote. And yeah, it did come down to fines and Hackman here. Gene Hackman, twenty nine percent of the vote, which means Ray Fiennes took it with thirty eight percent. Yeah, I mentioned when
1: I gave my pick last week that my head says Ray Fiennes is the right choice, but my heart says it's Gene Hackman, and that that dichotomy is maybe going to come back into play, Josh, with our next poll question. We'll get to in a moment, but first we do have a little bit of feedback from our listeners. Aaron G says it's Hackman for me because of the timeless line from Henry Sherman. I don't think you're an asshole, Royal. I just think you're kind of a son of a bitch. One which Hackman receives as if it's the nicest thing anyone has ever (laughs) said to him, because it probably is. No one in a Wes Anderson film or otherwise has ever walked the line between asshole and son of a bitch
3: quite like Hackman as Royal. We also heard from Susan in Phoenix. Susan from Phoenix here, here being the heat oven of the United States for the next four months. I have to vote Mr. Hackman. Tendenbaums pissed me off with the Beagle situation, and after that I swore off Wes and all of his films to come. But my former student, a Film Columbia MFA person, now stuck in a writer's strike, insisted I watch it again. So... As the theater mentor I claimed to be, I watched it, knowing I could leave during said dog incident. What struck me was the absolutely ridiculous, vulnerable ethos, pathos, whatever ride of Gene Hackman's performance. I saw my own father. I saw lost men I had known. I found hope in forgiveness. And I have to admit, it would, of course, have to be a West film which would force me to do more than just vote, but vote and explain myself. Dang it. He must have something going on.
1: Indeed, he does. Still, my favorite Wes Anderson film, and all of those layers that Susan talks about are a big reason why. Sean Means says As much as I enjoy the polls' choices, especially Fines and Grand Budapest, I have to go with the beautiful paired performance. This is really off the beaten path, I think, Josh, by the preteen romantics played by Jared Gilman and Kara Hayward mm. in Moonrise Kingdom, who seem natural in the hyper whimsical setting of the Wesiverse. <laughs>
3: Well, hey, that's what the other category is for. We also heard from Stevie Blue. I was about to say my man Rafe. His performance in Grand Budapest is so precise and assured. But then George Clooney's effortlessly iconic vocal performance in Fantastic Mr. Fox sprang to mind. I just had to vote other. Is Stevie Blue like your pseudonym or
1: something, Josh? <laughs> Could be. Could be. Andy Bucati says if forced to pick one of the four, it's fines easily. But the correct answer is other and is the ensemble of Moonrise Kingdom or French Dispatch or Grand Budapest or Tenenbaums. Wes Anderson, more than any other director, is about the power of the ensemble and what the members of that ensemble can create together. Hashtag, Andy writes, deeply flawed. (laughs) Yes, of course, it is deeply flawed. But Andy's great feedback there does tell me that. That's just another Wes Anderson poll question we get to use for his next film, Best mm, Anderson Ensemble, Best Ensemble. If we haven't done it already, which is possible we have.
3: Ooh, that one would be tough as well.
1: Yeah. Well, here's a question for you, Josh. Can we imagine Harrison
3: Ford in a Wes Anderson movie? Oh,
1: wow. I, I say yes, Absolutely.
3: Yeah. Your instinct is no, because you've just never really seen him in that register. I think the gruffness would work like the gruffness. That's what. Yes. Exactly. Um, But he would definitely have a different sort of delivery than we're mostly used to. I'd love to see it. Our new poll question concerns Mr. Ford
1: and looks ahead to another film like Anderson's Asteroid City that premiered at Cannes, though maybe didn't get quite so much acclaim. That's Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. It comes to theaters on June 30th. So we have a simple choice for you, we like to think. We're asking, what is your favorite Harrison Ford performance? Sam here, not even going with other. This is the deeply flawed hashtag portion of this. You can't write in Deckard or anybody else. Nope. It is simply Han Solo. Or Indiana Jones. Josh, your
3: vote went where? I'm going to delay my vote. And because this is why. Is that this, this is another factor for listeners to consider. Maybe it won't matter at all. But it might depend for me on how Indy goes out. I know how Han goes hmm. out. I've seen that. And that's part of the performance. It's part of the character. Maybe we'll see something similar, even if he doesn't die in Dial of Destiny, you have to think this is his last turn as Indiana Jones, because obviously, Adam, I'm torn. This is why I'm evading the question. (laughs) And I'm hoping maybe seeing him in Dial of Destiny will give me my answer. I could certainly
1: appreciate your evasion. My head says Indy is clearly the pick. It's a more substantive performance. We see more layers to that character. Potentially. And I think a large part of that is just tied to the fact that it's a lead performance. Screen time. I mean, he owns almost every frame of those Indiana Jones films. You can't say that about Han Solo. But my heart says there's no way I'm going against the first character I ever saw on a movie screen I desperately wanted to be. And and the trouble is, Sam mentioned this in our newsletter today that goes out to film spotting family members. He Framed it this way and said, think about it in terms of, and this wasn't any more helpful to me ultimately. He said, think about it in terms of whether or not you can imagine anybody else playing that character. And I do think that if I had to think in those terms, I'd say that somebody else could be Han Solo. I think someone else could probably be Han Solo, be the cocky, selfish, you know, sort of chauvinistic, funny guy who's the foil and the counter to Mark Hamill's goody two shoes. I think there probably could be another actor who could pull that off and we'd think about them the way we think about Harrison Ford. I'm not sure you could say that about Indiana Jones. It's not Tom Selleck, who I believe was originally, (laughs) potentially going to be cast in the role.
3: Yeah. No, I think, I think if you're looking for a way to get your mind around the question, that is helpful. And I think you're right. It is an issue of screen time, but also back to the layers you were talking about and the levels and what Ford particularly brings to that character. Um, that'd be a much tougher hurdle to jump.
1: Okay. Well, you've got a little bit more time to decide definitively where you fall on this Deeply flawed poll question in early Twitter and Facebook voting. Dr. Jones has a significant lead. You can vote in that poll and leave a comment at filmspotting.net. Two hundred feet down,
2: they enter the world of rupture, where compressed
3: air steals a man's reason. And the call takes on nightmare shapes. We get back into the top five characters who shaped us with that clip from Jacques Cousteau's The Silent World from 1956. So one of the things I just gobbled up as a little kid nature documentaries. I can vividly remember the TV show Wild Kingdom. I I always think of it as Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom, right? Of course. (laughs) That was the sponsor. I think this would have been the 80s probably. Uh, That was a staple for me. But then there were the documentaries of Jacques Cousteau, the, the French oceanographer, filmmaker, author, and explorer. I watched as many as came my way. I'm thinking this had to be, you know, PBS, Channel 11 here in Chicago. And somewhere... Along the way, I did get to see 1956's The Silent World. This is an underwater canvas of life beneath the surface in Mediterranean Sea, Persian Gulf, Red Sea. They go to the Indian Ocean. Uh, It's incredible. It's directed by Cousteau and also Louis Mao of My Dinner with Andre. So I don't know. Maybe this shaped me in terms of pushing me towards snobby cinephilia as well. I don't know. (laughs) Whatever the case, I, I do think it explains a few things, a few clear things. Firstly... Why I think the Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou is a top five Wes Anderson. And secondly, why I'm taking that trip later this week. We leave with my high school daughter to uh, help researchers monitor species from a riverboat in the Amazon. Pretty sure Cousteau's Amazon series, that did come out in the 80s when I was a kid. I think that was crucial in forming this lifelong dream. So, yeah, these are some very, very practical ways that uh, Jacques Cousteau did shape me with his work. Quite the adventurer. We'll see if I survive. We'll see how it goes. (laughs) (laughs) So I went a little out of order there and uh, jumped ahead of our guest. Aisha Harris, what do you have at number two?
0: Okay. So I I just like during this conversation, I realized that three of my picks are sort of intertwined together. So I've already mentioned Harry Burns and I've mentioned Esther Blodgett. And now my second uh, number two pick is Nola Darling from She's Gotta Have It. And um, this movie (laughs) probably more than anything sort of informed um, my sense of self in terms of uh, my sexuality and how I wanted to approach dating and uh, also just like wanting to aspire to have my own beautiful open brownstone in Brooklyn. (laughs) Uh, Never, never made that happen. I was going to say, did
1: you achieve that?
0: I mean, I did live in a in a brownstone in Brooklyn, but it w- was not nearly as large as that. As that.
3: Spacious. It, yeah, it
0: was not a loft. It was definitely not a loft. It, it was like maybe six hundred square feet. Uh, <laughs> but Nola Darling, to me, like her character and the way she uh, carries herself. For those of you who haven't seen it, she plays you know a twenty something year old woman living in Fort Greene in the mid eighties. at Spike Lee's feature debut. And um, she is openly dating three different men. Uh, There is Mars, who is played by Lee himself. He's basically this like perpetually unemployed sneakerhead. He's very immature. Um, You also have Greer, who's this vain supermodel, and Jamie, who's this like insecure romantic. And the three of them, actually, there's a there's a really fantastic and weird dinner scene where they all have Thanksgiving dinner together and the guys are vying for intention and trying to figure out who's going to get to stay the night with her and you know high school college me seeing that scene and being like wow this woman has these men whipped (laughs) and that's what I want Uh
2: (laughs) before we enjoy this meal I'd like to know whose brilliant idea this was who invited you And who invited you?
0: I invited all you fools. You were going to meet sooner or later, so why let it be an accident? I would love to to be able to just, like, have my pick and not care about any of these men. And she just, like, radiates this coolness and this aloofness that... I realize now is like not, again, in the similar vein of Harry Burns. It's like it's not necessarily something to aspire to, although she's always very honest and open with them about like, I'm not really interested in a relationship. And, you know, I think that by the end of the film and Spike Lee has since apologized for this and said he it was he made a mistake in how he he framed this because in the end, Jamie actually rapes Nola and it's kind of tossed off tossed aside and not really like treated as though it is a very heavy moment um and i think in a way this is like how <laughs> the the loose woman is often depicted in you know popular culture as like getting you know the revenge is that she will suffer violence at the hands of men um, for being loose and for being, you know, openly like having any sort of open sexuality at all. Um, but I also think there's just something really daring and interesting about her, despite the fact that, you know, she does have this terrible moment that happens to her, because I I do think she was a character who we had not really ever seen in film before. And I at the end, she's reclaimed her singledom and she's like done with Jamie and with presumably the other men. And she's like, he wanted a wife, that mythic old fashioned girl next door, but that's not her. And the fact that she sort of says that at the end and it's just like, this is who I am and I'm not changing. In a way, I admire that. And so I took some lessons from her in terms of what it means to feel free and assert your own um, independence and sexuality in a very hyper-masculine world. Um, And while I don't think necessarily the character, the story, is executed in the best way possible and has some, you know, problematic moments to it, I still think she's kind of a really interesting figure. And she shaped me just in terms of realizing that about myself and, again, kind of how not to be an asshole uh, (laughs) in some ways.
1: (laughs) This movie came out in 1986. You definitely did not see it then, Aisha. No. Uh, when when did you see? How old were you when you saw this film?
0: I'm pretty sure it was either high school or college the first time I saw it. I can't remember exactly when, but I was definitely on my sort of early Spike Lee kick. I'd already seen Do the Right Thing and I think that was the second one that I saw. Okay. Um so yeah, yeah, definitely like high school, college. Um yeah, peak Raging hormones, you
1: know <laughs> how, how sort of groundbreaking she felt, or revolutionary the character felt. Came out in '86. You saw it in the '90s. I actually didn't see. She's got to have it finally, until fairly recently. I, I I used Black Klansman as an excuse to go. I can't believe I still have this spiky blind spot. I have to see. She's got to have it. And and she felt revolutionary to me in 2017 or 18, whatever it was. That that line she has that is always stuck with me. She says it's it's really about control. My body, mm-hmm. my mind, who was going to own it, them or me. I'm not a one man woman. She says bottom line. And and that that sense of control and the fact that she takes it from those men surely is what drives Jamie to try to reclaim it in that in that terrible act.
3: Yeah, I think this is one of those Spike Lee movies that still seems incredibly fresh and direct and troubling in some good ways and some not so good ways, as you alluded to, Aisha. And I was thrilled to see that you were going to be tackling it in in the book. It's like, okay, this is one of the people I really want to dig into this movie. And I think it's a good example, of what we were saying at the top, where you come at it from that personal angle, bring in the context of how it's considered now, even by Spike Lee himself and kind of give us that whole nuanced perspective. Where, where are you at, you know, now on it just in terms of his filmography? Is is it something you've it's kind of settled for you now? Do you feel like you've you've wrapped your head around it or do you feel like you still need a couple more visit, revisits of it?
0: Oh, I think with most Spike Lee movies, I'm I'm just like it's it's an evolution. It's it's cuz he's not an easy filmmaker for no. for various reasons. Um I think only do the right thing is one where I'm just like you know, I, this is a masterpiece and I stick by that. Um, Everything else I'm kind of like, ooh, this, this is challenging in certain ways, whether it's his aesthetic choices that he's chosen or um, uh, narrative choices. Um, I think that's what makes him one of our greatest filmmakers is the fact that he is a challenge to wrap your head around.
1: Totally. Well, my number two character who shaped me, We're going to move out of my childhood and and early teens to my later teens when I finally caught up with this 1984 film. It's the only one on my list I think someone could really argue is maybe negative or that it had a negative impact on me in some way. And that's, I suppose, in the way I'm going to frame it. I'm talking about my patron saint, my champion who speaks for me and all the other mediocrities in the world, Antonio Salieri from Amadeus. Mozart's rival from the Milos Forman film. I talked about this, Josh, a little bit when we did our, our Amadeus Sacred Cow as part of our 8 from 84 series. I, I saw this at a point in my life when I, I still had this idea that that maybe I could be an artist myself. I, I could be a great musician. I, I had ambitions to be a great filmmaker someday and was embarking on that or saw myself as as really diving into that further. And I, I don't know if you know this about me, Josh, but I'm a little bit competitive
3: about, <laughs> I about most see that.
1: things. <laughs> and, and academically, even athletically as a younger kid, musically, things early on came very easy for me. And so I always sort of had this expectation that, of course, I'm going to be great at anything i put myself to. And as we've established from my other picks, greatness is something for whatever reason i was actually really concerned about. So i'm i'm playing bass in high school and and with my band in college where we wrote our own stuff and and i knew i was a competent bass player. Could probably say i was i was highly competent even, which is what made it even more crushing when i inevitably realized that competent is all i probably will ever be and what what helped me to that re- realization was was seeing mozart and seeing salieri he's looking he's he's hearing mozart's music for the first time and then later when when mozart's wife brings some of his original compositions and he sees them
2: astounding it was actually it was beyond belief these were first and only drafts of music, but they showed no corrections of any kind. Not one.
0: He had simply written down music already finished in his head.
2: Page after page of it, as if he were just taking dictation.
1: And that response, that that. At once sort of rapturous and then just hate-filled response he has looking at it, right? He says, he says, this was a music I'd never heard filled with such longing, such unfulfillable longing. It had me trembling. It seemed to me that I was hearing the voice of God. And he adds that all all I wanted was to sing to God. This is then what he's telling the priest later as an older man. He gave me that longing and then made me mute. Why? Tell me that. If he didn't want me to praise him with music, why implant the desire like a lust in my body and then deny me the talent? So when I when I saw other bass players who were younger than me, but their hands seemed like they were touched by God <laughs> and, and, and I had a gut instinct to be as angry as Salieri, you know, I think because of this movie – The fact is, I didn't feel that anger because I'd already come to terms to some extent with my mediocrity or at best my my goodness. I had I had accepted it and I was able to kind of move on and think about where I wanted to focus my energy and not, you know, focus my energy on trying to kill my rivals. (laughs) <laughs> that 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 didn't happen, so you know again this this one could maybe be seen as a little bit of a sad one or depressing one, and i'll I'll fully acknowledge that we're we're talking about Mozart for crying out loud. he was comparing himself to Mozart. I don't think anyone aspiring to do anything should think, well, if I can't be Mozart or if I can't be the Mozart of whatever it is I do of my field, then I should just give up. But I do think we all deep down have a sense of what we're truly capable of and what we're truly good at and what we're not. And a dose of realism can be instructive and can be, it can be helpful instead of debilitating or
3: completely dispiriting as it was for Salieri. He's my guy, my patron saint. Unless, you know, unless you have a Ferris Bueller complex and you just think everyone else is wrong. I mean, that can, Uh you could ride that for a long time, Adam. I needed
1: that confidence. I definitely, (laughs) definitely didn't have that when I was 18, 19, Josh.
0: Coming to terms with your own mediocrity is a a rite of passage that a lot of people don't ever achieve. (laughs) Yeah. So consider yourself.
1: uh, I'm one of the lucky ones. There you go. You're
0: lucky. You're very lucky.
1: (laughs) That's how I see it, Aisha. Thank you for that. That brings (laughs) us to our number ones, the number one movie character who shaped us. I can't wait to hear your pick, Aisha.
0: Okay, well, this one actually has some relevance this summer. Uh, <laughs> it's a familiar character, I'm sure, and it's a character who I do write about in the book, and that is Ariel from The Little Mermaid, from 1989, not from 2023, uh, <laughs> for for reasons that may seem obvious because I'm, you know, not a five-year-old girl right now. Um, <laughs> but Ariel, The Little Mermaid was uh you know probably one of my absolute earliest memories of a movie period um it came out a year or so after I was born so I don't remember seeing it in theaters but I do remember having it on VHS watching that movie to death and listening to the soundtrack many many times I I still listen to the soundtrack Who, who am I kidding There was something about her and it was her clamshell bra. It was her red hair and it was her just like her impetuousness, her her sort of fearlessness, her desire to be a part of a world that she did not belong to. And I was so drawn to that and drawn to especially the way she looked in ways that were not necessarily the most healthy way, um, I think, as a little black girl, seeing all these Disney princesses and most of them, none of them looked at like me until Princess and the Frog. And by then I was a full grown adult out of college. Um, But I I, I placed a lot of my desires and and ideas about myself on Ariel. And she is, like many Disney princesses, complicated, um, because on the one hand, I think it's there's something to be said for the fact that she's willing to do whatever it takes to get what she wants. Uh, of course, what she wants is a man and uh, that's it. There's no other aspirations. <laughs> no, She doesn't want to start a business or anything. It's The Little Mermaid. Um, the, the text itself, the, the Hans Christian Andersen text itself is already, it's got its own issues. And on top of that, she gives away her voice, a woman without a voice. And there's problems with that. But at the same time, I try to balance again, and I think this is a common theme throughout all of my picks, is like there's a balance to be found between the things that are not great about a character and the things that really resonate in spite of that or maybe because of that. And I think that, for me, Ariel has just really... She was the first sort of character that I aspired to be, in in a way, and she was the first character who... I just like really, really latched onto, and to this day is still someone I find just really fascinating. I rewatched the movie again recently for the I don't know how much... like I've I could quote this movie back to you easily um, from beginning to end, but I was still just struck by Jodie Benson's performance as her and how she's got she's just feisty and has this spark and is just. Like, she's just really fun, and I love that she defies her father, even if it means defying her father to go into the arms Ariel. of another man.
2: <laughs> uh, <laughs> Ariel, how many times must we go through this? You could have been seen by one of those barbarians, by by one of those humans.
1: Daddy, they're not barbarians.
2: They're dangerous. Do you think I want to see my youngest daughter snared by some fish eater's hook?
1: I'm 16 years old. I'm not a
0: child Don't anymore. you
2: take that tone of voice with me, young lady.
0: Ariel. She shaped me as a kid. She's still shaping me. And I, I just think she's someone I will always hold close to my heart <laughs> in many ways.
3: I feel like she's sort of a line of demarcation with the Disney princesses, too, in that, yes, she's not perfect, but does stand apart from pretty much everyone that came before and maybe that's something that you were you know I imagine you were already well steeped in Disney from the classics that you had watched so yeah to see her have just a little bit different of you know more independence taking more charge being the center of the story I can see that those things would resonate in in integral ways
1: I don't want to spoil this part of your book Aisha but you weren't allowed to have an aerial doll as a young kid, but all you that wanted to do was think about The Little Mermaid and play The Little Mermaid. So what was your solution to that?
0: Something that only a small child could even imagine, which was uh, I, I took some tissue you know, just like a piece of Kleenex or whatever. And she was my doll. Uh, and when it came time for her to uh, lose the fins and gain legs, uh, I just kind of ripped the <laughs> tissue in half at the bottom. And then she had to. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and you played this a lot. So I love the idea that that this, this aerial doll, the tissue was very, you know close to
3: you and really meant something, but ultimately... I mean, there disposable. were multiple
0: tissues. Yeah, I was yeah, going to yeah. say, yeah. <laughs> t- you
3: went through a lot of versions of this. <laughs> yes, yes. Ariel, Ariel died many times in this process, let's just say.
0: <laughs> yes.
3: <laughs> I love it. Josh, you're number one. All right. Uh This one's for you, Aisha, as I know we share a love for all things Muppets. My number one mm. is Kermit the Frog from the Muppet movie. I'm going to say maybe... You know, my aspirational Muppet might be, I don't know, I'd probably have to put more time into this. Maybe Gonzo. Kermit, though, Kermit is um, my true Muppet, okay? The one that I recognized in myself then, and I'll get to why, you know, how he may be for me as a character. Kermit, of course, the worried, overwhelmed producer, ringleader of a chaotic group of performing weirdos, voiced by Muppets mastermind Jim Henson. I did grow up watching the Muppet TV show and can distinctly remember seeing Kermit try to create a show out of chaos each week. Yes, I thought it was funny, but it was also intensely nerve wracking for me, even as a kid. And this was before I really had any responsibilities. You know, I, I wasn't working as an editor. I wasn't a father. Even as a kid, I did not do well with disorder. And for the record... I still don't, but that is not a reflection on any of my colleagues or anyone I live with. It's just more about my need for control. Well,
1: some colleagues, I mean, any of our family members who have heard our drafts know how you feel about disorder, (laughs) Josh.
3: That's true. (laughs) Very good point. There is, however, another aspect to my uh, Kermit identification. And it does have to do with 1979's The Muppet Movie. This is where we learn how the Muppets got together and find out Kermit aspired to a career in show business because he was told that he could make millions of people happy. Later in the film, however, after he has gathered this band of performers on this road trip to Hollywood, it all falls apart. Kermit blames himself. And then he tries to comfort himself in a wonderful little dialogue.
2: I didn't promise anybody anything. What do I know about Hollywood anyway? Just the dreams I got from sitting through too many double features. So why did you leave the swamp in the first place? Because some agent fellow said I had talent. (laughs) He probably says that to everybody. On the other hand, if you hadn't left the swamp, you'd be feeling pretty miserable anyhow. Yeah. But then it would just be me feeling miserable. Now I got a lady pig and a bear and a chicken, a dog, a thing, whatever Gonzo is. He's a little like a turkey. Mm, Yeah, a little like a turkey, but not much. No, I guess not. Anyhow, I brought them all out here into the middle of nowhere. It's all my fault.
3: Now, despite my jerky Ferris Bueller tendencies, I also do have this people-pleasing instinct. So I get really anxious in social situations. Family gatherings, large friend activities, I don't know, film spotting meetups, maybe, Adam, if I sense people aren't happy or feel like they're left out. And then, of course, I feel guilty about it. Like, what What should I have been doing to to rectify that situation? So I think in a couple of ways, Kermit has always been my anxiety buddy. He understands. He's gone through it. And so, yeah, in, in that Muppet movie scene, he's he's talking to me. I love it.
1: It's yeah. it's maybe a case too, Josh, where you've got a little bit of Kermit in you. You know, you're just you're kind of tall and lanky, and I don't know.
3: I I just <laughs> is, I,
0: is Kermit tall and lanky? <laughs> I
3: mean, yeah, I'm gonna no, say he's, he's like two and a half feet tops. At very he's very lanky though. He's lanky. And so yes. is Josh. That's what <laughs> okay. I'm, that's we'll what go with I'm that. Go
1: with. That's the only comparison I could come up with. Okay, my number one character who shaped me won't be a surprise to anybody who's been a long time listener of this show. And until last week, this movie actually hadn't come up in a while. (laughs) It's come up a lot over 18 plus years, but it had been a while. And now back to back weeks, I'm going back to the early eighties. I'm going back to Robin Williams. There was a reason why there was a time where I thought he was the greatest actor on the planet. The character is Garp from the world. According to Garp, I always considered this movie to be formative without really processing specifically how. I, I just thought maybe it somehow explained my neuroses <laughs> because the, the movie is dealing with a lot of big topics that I was not ready to consider when I saw it at age six, seven, or eight. But it, it started to crystallize for me back in 2014 when we were commemorating Robin Williams' career. Josh, we did our top five Robin Williams scenes. Mm-hmm. That scene from Dead Poets Society was on the list. I'm pretty sure this this scene I'm going to talk about in a minute was was my number one. And then I I rewatched GARP and talked about it on Peter Labusa's podcast, The Cinephiliacs, where you have to pick that kind of one movie that looms large in your, your psyche. And I was thinking about it again recently. I gave a talk at my old school at Grinnell College, and I had to really think about for this talk about where my passions came from and how I've translated those passions into professions. And we look at this list and all the things I've been talking about on the most basic level, GARP is a movie about a writer. He, he's someone who we see as a younger man, uh, as a kind of high school kid, is, and even before that, aspires to be a novelist, and then he, he becomes one. So not unlike Eddie and the Cruisers or Dead Poet Society, the, the romanticism around art and the creation of art was something that spoke to me, again, even at that really young age. But there's one scene in particular that, that has always lingered in my mind, and it's this, this scene where he's written a short story. And he gives it to his mom, Jenny Fields, who's a nurse played by Glenn Close. He gives it to her to read. And we've seen all the time that he's put into this story and how he's drawn it from his own personal experiences and then how he's transformed it into this this short story. She goes and reads it. He's anxiously waiting for her to emerge and to give him some feedback. And she emerges and really has nothing initially to say. He, He finally draws it out of her. And she, she has to confess that she just really doesn't get it. And he has to explain what it means, the significance of the magic gloves.
2: It's very simple. He can do wonders when he's wearing his magic gloves. If his wife is sad, he just touches her with his gloves and she's happy. If his children are crying, he just touches them and they smile. But he can't feel them. He yearns to feel. He can even hold off death with his magic gloves, but he can't feel life. So he takes off the gloves and he dies, but he finally feels life as he's flying into the arms of death.
3: I like that. If that's what it means, I like it.
1: I think my desire, as I trace it back now, I think my desire to, to understand and to talk about movies probably goes back to Garp and even this scene where, you know, on your best day as a critic, you're doing exactly what Garp does in this scene for his mother. She doesn't get it. She doesn't know if she likes it. And he unlocks the meaning of it for her. He says, this is what it's about. And and she then appreciates it. She still isn't sure she gets it, but she appreciates it. And he opens up an avenue for connection with a piece of art that the the viewer or the reader in this case wasn't able to do on their own. And I, I, again, I think that that new understanding, it it changes her relationship to the work into something positive and it seems to me as good an example of what we at least try to do or hope we're doing on on some of those good days here on the show or what any critic is is striving for and i never would have i never would have imagined that this movie was the catalyst for me sitting here talking about film or engaging in film criticism someday but i really do think it
3: it goes back to magical scenes like this one with the magic gloves I think you're, this is just a two week campaign, Adam, for you to get me to finally watch Garp. I, I, yeah. I did my best. I watched, you know, I watched all that jazz after you'd been going on and on about it for years. Mm-hmm. Glad I did. So another, now, another artist movie. Yeah. Striving yeah. For greatness, self destructive. So now I've just, I do have to do it. I'm going to have to get to Garp.
1: Yeah. I'm always, I, I'm terrified that, that, you know, you'll do that and then you'll hate it. And then I'll just have to pretend like you didn't watch it and we won't ever talk about it because <laughs> it will destroy me too much. And, you know, I don't know anyone, I don't know anyone who feels the way I do about the world according to Garp. So I don't really expect people to watch it and be like, yes, Adam, that's a five star film. It, it, no one put it on their sight and sound list. Okay. And, and maybe someday <laughs> I'll get asked and I'll put it on my sight and sound then list. Then it'll happen. And then it will happen. But you know what? It's, it's my film, and that is why it's at number one. I love it. And those are the top five movie characters who shaped us, inspired by Aisha Harris's great new book, Wannabe Reckonings with the Pop Culture, that shapes me. Aisha, thanks so much for doing this, for, for being on the show officially. We've had contributions from you over the years, and um, we've always appreciated those. But um, this was really fun, and I hope we get to do it again.
0: Yeah, I've been listening to you all since 2009, 2010. So this is a longtime fan and so glad to be here. And thank you so much for having me.
3: It's been so good to have you on, Aisha. Yeah, tell people where they can find the book.
0: Uh, Yeah, you can find it. Uh, pretty much anywhere books are sold, uh, you might be able to find it at your local bookstore. And if you can't, ask them to to, to get it. Um, I There's also an audio version, audible version of it. And I uh, read it myself. So if you, <laughs> you like my voice, <laughs> go ahead and check me out uh, via the audiobook version.
1: And of course, listen to Aisha on NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour. You can get that podcast any other socials or anything else you want to plug uh
0: the easiest way is just go to my website aishaharris.com, and then you can see where you can find me on insta twitter for now i'm now on blue sky as well uh look <laughs> so, at you yeah it's, it's not popping quite yet um <laughs> but you know it takes time for people to migrate
3: <laughs> aisha harris once again thank you so much thank you take care aisha if you'd like to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Letterboxd, Adam is at FilmSpotting and I'm at Larson on Film. For show t shirts or other merch, you can go to filmspotting.net slash shop. Film Spotting is listener supported. You can join the Film Spotting Family at filmspottingfamily.com for as little as five bucks a month. You can listen to the show early and ad-free. Plus, you'll get a weekly newsletter. You also get monthly bonus shows. We've got one Coming up, somehow we were ahead of the game, already recorded mm-hmm. this, Adam. It's In the can. It's an Ask Us Anything episode. We handle, I think, a three or four of your questions uh, and dig into them along with producer Sam on this month's bonus show.
1: Yeah, really fun one to record. As you said, producer Sam was part of it. We got to some of your questions, and we also talked a little bit about... The last 25 years, a question thrown out by Rotten Tomatoes, who's celebrating their 25th anniversary. We looked at our favorite TV shows and movies, if you just had to pick five, from the last 25 years. So you can find that all in upcoming bonus content we'll publish here in the next couple weeks. It is our June bonus show that's available to Film Spotting family members. Learn more at FilmSpottingFamily.com. Part of your family membership can be access to the complete film spotting archive. If you look, Josh, a lot of references to movies that came up on this show. Episode 796 is when we did that 8 from 84 Sacred Cow review of Amadeus, and that's a movie that's shown up on top 10 lists going back to 2005 and going back to Sam putting Amadeus on some of his lists, also making Top five lists over the years. Yeah, I've talked about the right stuff before. Ferris Bueller's Day Off has come up actually 11 times on top five lists, including top five coolest characters, or if I could be one character in the history of film, that was Sam on episode 129, I believe. Rolled According to Garp has come up a bunch, Dead Poets Society, we did do a Sacred Cow review of that following Robin Williams' death on episode 502, once again filmspottingfamily.com is where you can get all the info you need about becoming part of the film spotting family. Out in wide release this week, you've got The Blackening. The tagline is we can't all die first. A group of black friends reunite for a Juneteenth weekend only to find themselves trapped in a cabin with a twisted killer. You can also see The Flash and Pixar's Elemental, which,
3: Josh, feel like you're what safe to say a little lukewarm on a little lukewarm mildly recommending probably best for pixar diehards next week
1: again should be two really good discussions about two of the more acclaimed films so far this year past lives from celine song and then asteroid city at least in terms of its can buzz josh and our appreciation for anderson's
3: work one we're eager to dive into Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Deso and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistants are Betty Lavendaro and Veronica Phillips. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening.
1: This conversation can
2: serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye.
1: Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at FilmSpottingFamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at FilmSpottingFamily.com.